So today is kind of a, a, a special unit, and I've done it, I think, once before, and I will continue to do it because it's, um, A, it's an important topic that is right at the heart of a lot of important things we believe, and B, it's personally a lot of fun for me, so I'm not sure if today is more for me or for you, and you can be the judge of that. And that is the reasons the church is distinct from Israel. Um, this hits to the heart of how we interpret the Bible. It hits to the heart of the story of the Bible. Um, it hits a, a lot of big things. It, it, it definitely impacts daily living because if you don't believe the church is distinct from Israel, um, that leads to... Uh, amillennialism or postmillennialism which definitely impacts how you live um, that can lead to uh, if you're postmillennial being overly political and believing that by getting the right people in office that we can Christianize our society um, the dominion theology that's getting so big today that, that Christians ought to have dominion over everything um, as uh, John MacArthur said earlier this week um, post-millennialism is taking a huge hit right now because the world's not getting better according to uh, the news, it's just getting worse so, um, so this topic while it is interesting it, it's much more than just a little theological Logical uh, niche that that we're interested in it it really hits to the heart of how we view scripture and how we view the promises of God and one of the reasons I I do this and I'll take I'll probably take a couple of weeks to go through this one of the reasons I do it is because um, there's never been listen carefully never been one single book written that can really profoundly refute the idea that the church is distinct from Israel. Not one. And yet today, covenant theology that, that believes the church and Israel are, are mixed up in some way um, is claiming victory. They're, they're claiming that dispensationalism is dead and gone. It's a dying fad and that sort of thing. It's not. And so to, to battle that um, with intellectual integrity, you have to... Um, I, I like to do woodworking, and sometimes I guess my habit is to overly uh, attach things that if one screw will work, I'd rather have five plus glue and ten nails. Um, that's just me. I want something that five people could hang on. And so we could give three or four really good reasons that the church is distinct from Israel. I'm going to give you 32 because I want to show you that the, the evidence for it is overwhelming. And, um, and again, that gets into the part where it's just fun for me, so I'm sorry about that part. But let's pray, and then we're going to get into this, and we'll, we'll take our time. Our Father, we come to you this morning approaching you as our promise-keeping God. You must be a God who keeps promises or we are the most deceived and the most fearful people ever to have lived. If you didn't keep your promise going all the way back to the Garden of Eden to send a Redeemer, one who would crush the head of Satan, if you were not a promise-keeping God, we would not have had hope throughout redemptive history. If the Lord Jesus, fully God, fully man, was not a promise-keeping God, when he says, I will not lose one out of my hand that the Father has given me, then we are the most fearful and deceived people of all time because we must fear that Christ might open his hand and lose us. So our time this morning is not just to explore a, a theological little corner 
but it really is to celebrate the fact that we have a promise-keeping God. We thank you for this Lord's Day. Turn our hearts, our affections, our emotions, our, our minds fully to you this day. Let us leave the world behind and let us transcend the sinfulness of this world into the glories of our God this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, it is necessary to kind of get into the weeds and, and to read some long quotes. Uh, I, was, I, I, was, uh, I read one book on preaching that said, never read a long quote because your people aren't used to it. Um, well, get them used to it, so you're used to it. So, I want to start off with, and I started this last week just as sort of a teaser. I want to read you this quote from... Uh, Gary Burge in his um, NIV application commentary, and, and just to be clear, I, I really enjoy his work. Um, he is a he is a preeminent scholar, uh, one of the best writers in the Gospel of John. I used him extensively when I was preaching through John, but his view of Israel is in error. He's talking about John 15 and the vineyard metaphor. Uh, of John 15 and he says that that shows that Israel replaces uh, or, or that Jesus replaces Israel with himself and just to just to go quickly on the sidetrack here there are varieties of beliefs about replacement theology um, some believe that Jesus replaces Israel as the new Israelite from uh, Isaiah 49 and we believe Jesus is the ultimate Israelite who leads the ultimate nation of Israel it doesn't have to be one or the other uh, others say that the church replaces Israel and there are mixtures in between uh, Burge is more in the, the side of Jesus replacing the nation of Israel that there will be no nation of Israel. And so here's what he says. The practical implications of this are profound. Christians, particularly Western evangelicals, and I'll stop right there for a minute. Again, I pointed this out last week. Um, what does that say? That says if you were born uh, in the Western Hemisphere, that you were somehow uh, uh, handicapped in your ability to understand Scripture. That being born in Iran would be better than being born in Nebraska, um, as far as interpreting Scripture. That That is a, a massive error that so many people believe that they just write about it as if it's true. So when you're reading anything um, and somebody states something to be true, you always have to ask the question, what proof did he give that this statement is true? And so when he says the practical implications of this are profound, Christians, particularly Western evangelicals, have been quick today to endorse the territorial agenda of modern Israel for theological reasons. I, I would actually tend to agree with them. We do endorse the territorial agenda of modern Israel for theological reasons. Because we believe God will restore Israel. We said last week, Israel of today is not the Israel of the future. This is not saved Israel. This is not redeemed Israel. But it's simply proof that God can resurrect a nation twice. And, that's, and that makes the third time no big deal, right? Often it is zeal for eschatological fulfillment that has prompted some evangelicals to make commitments to Israeli nationalism. So, let me stop right there for a moment. And, and, this is, and this is disappointing to me because this is the very worst type of so-called scholarship. He just told me what's in my heart. He told you what's in your heart. That you believe in Israel's fulfillment because you have an eschatological zeal. Well, what does that mean? It means this. You know, I'm that dispensationalist that's, that's eager to put up charts and, and things like that. And that's fine. But he doesn't know that. That's not a provable statement. 
Um, he hasn't taken a poll of 50 million evangelicals, for example, and said, what is it that drives your commitment to Israeli nationalism? He hasn't done that. So he, he makes a statement, um, an authoritative statement, without authoritative proof. And so what do you do with that? He, you know, it's, it's his opinion. That's all it is. He says, however, deep within the New Testament is an announcement of a reversal, a radical reversal. Now, and again, I'm, I guess I'm exegeting his statement here. Deep within the New Testament, translation, something I've discovered that you're too stupid to figure out. That is a big problem in all of generally covenant theology and in, and in replacement theology is the need for authorities to explain to regular people what the real story is. And I just don't believe that. Now I, I know that I come every Sunday and hope to try to explain scripture to you but it's not because you can't do it for yourself it's because I can take 20 hours of study for one message and pour that into one hour for you which is incredible uh, to, to be the recipient of that on both ends but when he says deep within the New Testament that's when my my flares start going up my flags start going up oh so once you get to a certain level of education now you can truly understand the Bible that's just arrogant um and that is, that is so common, particularly in those that have held to covenant theology their entire life, um, raised in covenant theology. That's so common. They don't even realize, I, I think a lot of times, because these are good and godly men, but they don't realize that they're talking down to believers. Um, we believe in what's called the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Um, that the scripture is clear. It means what it says and it says what it means. So when anybody says deep within the New Testament, it means I found it and you haven't and you should believe me. There's an announcement of a reversal, a radical reversal. Just as Jesus is a replacement for the religious functions of the temple, so too Jesus replaces the religious inheritance of the land. Now, that's a, that is a logical fallacy right there. Just as Jesus is a replacement for the religious functions of the temple, that is true. So, too, Jesus replaces the religious inheritance of the land. He doesn't say how those two go together. That's like me saying, um, just like an orange is a fruit, so also broccoli is fruit. Okay, orange is a fruit, but that doesn't prove to me that broccoli is a fruit. Right? So, um, that's the thing. You read... You read scholars with um, a lot of skepticism and a lot of, of care because they're godly men who are flawed. So that's, that's a big deal. When you say there's an announcement of a reversal, a radical reversal, wow, you're saying a lot about the character of God. That, that alone would merit stopping all, all things and saying, hang on a minute, what do you mean by a radical reversal? What would that mean for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for David, if they were standing right here? What would they say to that? I'll give you another quote. This is from Douglas Van Dorn. I think it's important when you're talking about a different theological system than one you believe. It's important to um, go to those who believe that system and not go to those who have quoted those who believe that system. You want to go to, to first sources, to direct sources, primary sources. But this is clear. God granted to Abraham a land. Genesis fifteen seven. In Christ, who is our land and our rest. All right, hang on a minute. 
the book of Hebrews does talk about Christ and being in Christ being our Sabbath rest. Uh, there's no place in Scripture that says Jesus is our land. So, um, and in the book, he did I do it in the quote? Um, yes. Do you know? Did you know that if you capitalize a letter, that makes it true? <laughs> well, that's what he did. He's our land. There, I, look, I've done a study of the names of Jesus. Um, I've, I've preached sermons just on the names of Jesus. He's never called our land. Why? Because he's not our land. So that's, a, that's just, you know, at, le- at least put a Bible verse there, but there isn't one, so we can't. God granted Abraham a land. Genesis fifteen seven In Christ, who is our land and our rest, the typological land becomes a kingdom. And he quotes John 8, or he cites John 18, 36. John 18, 36 proves nothing of the kind. He goes on to say that a physical nation, quote, and a plot of land in the Middle East are merely types, shadows, of the spiritual realities we now enjoy. Did you catch what he did? A plot of land in the Middle East. That is what the Bible calls reviling. That is denigrating something or someone to elevate your, your viewpoint. Um, a plot of land in the Middle East. Do you think that that's what Abraham would have thought? When God said, look at the land before you, look as far as you can to the east and to the west, to the north and the south, all this will be yours. Do you think Abraham said, oh, it's just a plot of land in the Middle East? Do you think that when Israel crossed the promised land and for the first time this generation of people who were 59 years old and younger, who had been wandering the wilderness for 40 years, for the first time they had a house and they had fields and they had walls and they had a yard and they had a place to keep their animals. Do you think for them that was just a plot of land in the Middle East? So, so making statements like that and, and I appreciate Van Dorn. He, he's, a, he's a godly man. He's a believer, certainly. Um, but this is a case of only reading people you agree with. And, and then writing a theology. And his theology is not much. It's just a little thin, kind of a, kind of a, a, a small covenant theology, a Reformed Baptist primer. Um, so, to me, if you're going to say a plot of land in the Middle East, okay, let's do a study on land. Um, there's a guy who, uh, he published a book just in the last year, um, and it is on the land promises of Israel. It's a theology of, of the land, and I know his name, and it's just uh, Boyd Lutzer, that's his name. Um, and the theology of the land, it's like 400 pages thick, the theology of land, and he decimates covenant theology at a level I've never seen before. Because he simply goes through all the land promises. He goes through logic from Genesis through Revelation. And by the way, he proves that the old adage that land promises are not found in the New Testament, he proves that to be false. And he shows land promises all over the place. He makes a good case that First Peter uh, is written primarily to Jews, and you see land promises uh, repeated in First Peter. That he calls them a chosen nation. Who's First Peter written to originally? To the dispersion. To the dispersed Jews, and of course it applies to us. Um, but uh, so you just you can't just make a broad statement like that without backing it up. If you're going to erase an entire biblical concept, you better show it. Show your work. Did you ever get in trouble in math class for not showing your work? This is a, he should get in trouble for not showing his work. 
Jesus, who is our, our land? Show your work. How'd you come to it? Merely types, shadows of the spiritual realities we now enjoy. Show your work. Well, he can't. So what are we to think? Is the church distinct from Israel? And we've talked about this already, but I think it's better to use language like continuity and discontinuity. We don't want to force a black and white distinction that Israel and the church are completely separate in every way because we're not. We have more continuities than discontinuities. Uh, we, we talked about this yesterday at our women's event. Uh, men and women, uh, <clears throat> God created woman for a man to be a helper suitable for him. Suitable is a word that means basically a mere image, the same but different. That the man and the woman have way more in common than we have that are different. Same with Israel and the church. So no one denies the continuities between Israel and the church. A short list of them here. Uh, all who come to faith are saved by faith. That's always been the case. There's a requirement of individual salvation. That's always been the case. Uh, Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says that the righteous shall live by faith. Partakers in the Abrahamic covenant and partakers in the new covenant, we have that in common. How are we partakers of the Abrahamic covenant? We are part of the nations that will be blessed because of Abraham. We are partakers in the New Covenant. Is the New Covenant fully fulfilled right now? No. Why not? Because Israel isn't a part of it. But we we get kind of a preview and we get to enjoy it and we get to kind of run on ahead. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit being in every saved individual, that is is contiguous between between Israel and the church. But just because there are great and wonderful continuities doesn't mean we erase or deny the discontinuities. Any more than we would say, uh, you know, red and blue have a lot in common, um, and so let's just call them one color. Everything has to be purple now. No, does purple exist? Yes. Does red exist? Yes. Does blue exist? Yes. And that is part of God's variety, part of God's plan. So let me just give you some big picture notes, and we're still at kind of a high level here. The first note, in the broad scope of redemptive history, the emphasis doesn't stay so much on Israel versus the church. That's, that's not the emphasis. The church is defined very clearly as the people of God on earth between Pentecost and the rapture. That, that is our definition. But in the longer range view of redemptive history, the distinctions go toward more toward Israel and the nations. That's where the distinctions go. Israel as the chief glorious nation which serves as the capital nation of new earth. And then some would say that the church is simply everyone who will ever be saved going all the way back to Adam, continue with Israel, then the Gentiles. That's an overly simplified use of the word church. The church is is defined as the people of God between the time of Pentecost and the rapture. A a clear, clear evidence from scripture that that is a, a, a time period. Another big picture note. I think it's important to know that the burden of proof is definitely on those that say that the church is not a separate entity. You have to prove that. Walt Kaiser wrote this. There is an enormous body of biblical evidence that you have to maintain the distinctions, including continuities and discontinuities. And now, in Kaiser's um, statement, the context is he's arguing against the idea of replacement theology. I'm going to mention that below. But the same point can be made to say Israel and the church as the exact same thing. That has to hurdle mountains and mountains of evidence to the contrary. So look for proof that a church is a separate entity 
to me, is an indicator of starting with a presupposition rather than letting the scriptures speak. It, nobody reading the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, without the so-called help of theologians, would come to the conclusion that Israel and church are the same thing. Nobody would come to that conclusion. And so, to me, me going to the scriptures to say, uh-oh, I'd better find proof that Israel and the church are separate. No, it's the other way around. It's already there. Um, those who say Israel and the church are the same thing or inculcated or replaced and so forth, um, it's up to them to go and show it from Scripture because they can't. I am, however, going to show you from Scripture just so you know where we get this. So that's the bigger picture. Let's come down a little bit more. A couple of preliminary considerations. It is, it's a false dichotomy and it's a straw man argument. A straw man argument is when you set up, you tell me I believe something I don't believe and then tell me why I'm wrong. Well, you have to prove I believe that in the first place. Um, a, a couple of years ago, uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem was on vacation for a number of weeks and uh, right while he was gone somebody decided to resurrect a 25 year old controversy um, and just nailed Dr. Grudem and there's a couple things we would disagree with him on but, but basically uh, just set him up as somebody he's not and he wrote an article in response when he came back and he said he, he went on vacation and was surprised to find that by the time he returned he was now a heretic <laughs> And they set up arguments of things that he didn't actually say or believe. Um, that's a straw man argument. Here's the straw man argument that I think gets thrown at dispensationalists all the time. So you believe God has two separate peoples. In other words, God is going to deal with the church as a separate entity and Israel as a separate entity that, and never made the two meet. Now, is it true that in earlier dispensational thought that that thought was explored? Absolutely. But you know what I love about dispensationalism? We're not afraid of 1 Timothy 4.15. Let your progress be made known to all. We, we don't say, well, good theology was frozen in time 400 years ago and nobody's learned anything since. So dispensationalism is willing to learn and I, I think that's important. Early dispensational thought tried to make sense of these clear distinctions and I think took it too far. Um, some even uh, maintained a heavenly and an earthly kingdom as separate. Um, I, I don't know of anybody who believes that anymore. I, I think good scholarship has shown that not to be the case. Ultimately, God has one people, certainly. All who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, that's what the whole chapter is about. That we are the one new man. Does that erase all distinctions between us? Not at all. There are chronological varieties. What do I mean by chronological varieties? There's Moses. Moses was saved 3,500 years ago. Can you even grasp that? And then there is you. You were saved whenever you were saved. There's a chronological variety. There's ethnic varieties. People saved all over the world. There are the people of God saved before Israel, the Jewish people of God saved in Israel, the Gentiles saved in Israel, such as Rahab and Ruth, Gentiles and Jews saved outside of Israel. That's the, that's the church age. That's proven by Acts 15 that you don't need to become a Jew first. There will be the post-church age tribulation saints and, and by pretty clear implication to me at least, the post-tribulation millennial saints as well people getting saved during the millennium. So, does God have two separate peoples? No, he has one people of God, but with a variety chronologically and ethnically. And that's okay. 
Another preliminary consideration, many who believe we should erase the distinction between Israel and the church, they push back against the idea of replacement theology or supersessionism. And I always spell supersessionism wrong. I think I actually got it right in the slide. I spelled it wrong in my, in my notes. Um, one spell check came out. I can't spell anymore. So that's just the way it goes. So here's what, here's what I, I've read. I've read covenant theologians who say replacement theology is a label that dispensationalists made up. We, we don't believe that. They would say that the, the idea that the church has replaced Israel is a made-up argument, that that is a straw man argument the dispensationalists made up. But the idea of the church replacing Israel historically is, is very easily proven to be part of covenant theology and their belief system. They're, they're backpedaling on the point. Why? Because replacement theology sounds pretty, pretty sharp, doesn't it? It sounds anti-Semitic. You want to know why? It is. There's no other way around it. It is anti-Semitism. They would never call it that and they would get angry at that. What, what do you call a belief system that says God is not concerned with the Jews anymore? That's anti-Semitism. And so they're backpedaling on it because they know that that sounds horrible. They should at least be honest enough to say we've developed away from that view as being erroneous. That's fine. 1 Timothy 4.15 I, I don't think all covenant theologians are replacement theology proponents but to deny the historic connection is just inaccurate it's, it's there covenant theologians have called the term replacement theology quote a pejorative term which was made up by dispensationalists where did we get the term replacement theology we got it from quoting covenant theologians not not citing them, quoting them. Exactly. Michael Vlock writes, with evidence to back it up, quote, unfortunately for those who desire a different label, apparently the horse is already out of the barn. The title Replacement Theology is well established and does not appear to be going away anytime soon. Plus, many theologians who, who espouse a supersessionist view have used the terms replace and replacement in regard to Israel and the church to warrant the title replacement theology. And then he names current leading supersessionist theologians who continue to use the term replacement. But even with those who would prefer sort of a softer take, a softer idea of the church fulfilling Israel in which Israel is the the picture and the type, so to speak, and the church is really the fulfillment, they still fall into the category of saying national Israel is done as a nation. So, that's preliminary considerations. Now we can start the 32. I think I have 32. Reasons to consider. Israel and the church is distinct. We're going to do this in two parts. Uh, Part one, directly from Scripture. That's always the best evidence. And then I have... Uh, the last seven or eight or so are other considerations. Not as strong in weight, but still um, worth considering. So, directly from Scripture. And and I'm sorry I don't have really nice little sharp labels for these, but uh, uh, sometimes you just have to be detailed. First of all, to have the church in Israel be indistinct now forces a huge spiritual uh, interpretation onto massive portions of uh, prophecy in Scripture, and it affects hundreds of passages. And I've mentioned this a thousand times, but now land is no longer land, but it's a symbol. 
It's a symbol like circumcision of the provision and grace that the church has in Christ. For example, Genesis 15, 18, God promises Abraham that to his descendants, God will give all the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, which that's never happened yet, by the way. But kind of in typical fashion of one who has a presupposition, an assumption that the promises to Abraham don't have a literal fulfillment in Israel, uh, the good old Puritan Matthew Henry wrote this, The land granted is here described in its utmost extent because it was to be a type, meaning a, a metaphor of the heavenly inheritance where there is room enough. In our Father's house are many mansions. Is it true that in our Father's house there's room enough for all who would be saved? Of course. Is that what God told Abraham when he said the land will go from uh, the Euphrates to the Nile? No. What was God saying? The land's going to go from the Euphrates to the Nile. There's no reason to not say that. And so we want to be very careful... And particularly when we say that it's a symbol, how do we know circumcision was a symbol? Because God said it was a symbol. How do we know the Sabbath was a symbol? Because God said it's a symbol. How do we know baptism and the Lord's table are a symbol? Because God said they're symbols. How do we know the land is a symbol? You don't. God never said the land was a symbol. In fact, he goes to great lengths to give, uh, even in in Genesis 17, we get even more uh, boundaries. If we drew, by the way, the boundary of Israel the way it's supposed to be, it would be approximately five times the size it is now. It would be huge, as it ought to be. So there's going to be a lot of Syrians and Iranians and Egyptians going, hey, I didn't know I was in Israel someday. Now, I know Matthew Henry wrote that hundreds of years ago, and he was a product of his times. But in 2013, this is less than a decade ago, the Church of Scotland issued an official report which, quote, concluded the land promised to Israel no longer stands and was allegorical to begin with. And what does that give them the excuse to do? It gives them the excuse to support the Palestinians and not, not the Israelis. So that's reason number one from Scripture. Another reason, the Bible explicitly promises that God's covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, ultimately the new covenant, is eternal and unbreakable. Both are eternal. Are you, are you a recipient of the Abrahamic covenant right now? You are. You are blessed through the offspring of Abraham. Offspring, capital O, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We all worship a, a, a son of Abraham. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 35, is very explicit about this. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord. By the way, that, uh, that negates climate change, just to let you know. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Israel slash Jacob descendants thus says the Lord if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done declares the Lord you know before just a a couple of months ago that giant new telescope that's up in the sky and taking all these pictures uh, a lot of astronomers were saying we're really close to being able to measure the universe once this thing got up there they said we will never do it 
it's impossible. Well, we could have told you that from Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-seven. That's a what is God saying? The universe would have to melt down on its own outside my sovereignty before Israel ceases being a nation. That's pretty steep proof right there. That's a pretty high hill to climb. How about this one? This is not in order of importance. The Apostle Paul's declaration, Romans 11, 1 and 2, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I mean, you can close the book right there. We can close in prayer, have an extra 25 minutes for coffee, and we're, and we're done. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. What is he doing here? He's saying, I'm a member of this nation. I'm from Abraham. I'm from Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? In no way ever does God, uh, through Paul, try to say that the church is now Israel. And remember, uh, Paul wrote Romans sometime in the 50s AD. If there's ever a time to say the church is the new Israel, and if there was ever a guy to do it, it would have been Paul. To say, I used to consider myself a descendant of Abraham. I used to consider myself a Benjaminite. But now I'm just part of the people of God. All the church. But but he's doing the opposite of this. He's giving his family tree going, look, I go back to Abraham. This is awesome. I don't think Paul said awesome, but I did. (laughs) The other times in Romans 9 through 11, Paul keeps the church in Israel distinct. Romans 9 verse 4. 9 verse 24, 30 and 31, chapter 10 verses 1 and 2, verse 19, verse 20, chapter 11 verses 1 and 2, which I just read, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verses 17 through 25. That is a very conservative view. Like I'm even more conservative than others. Others see the distinction between Israel and the church in more places. And never in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, which is all about Israel and how the church has been grafted in, never are the two mixed. Never are the two made one. Um, I grew up in southern Arizona and grafting fruit trees was a big deal. Like everybody did it. It was kind of a hobby. In one of the houses we lived in when I was a kid, we had one tree that had like oranges and lemons and tangerines all growing off these. Um, Yeah, the branches were connected, but the oranges were still oranges and the lemons were still lemons. They didn't turn into, you know, lemon orangelos or something. They were different fruit, still on the same tree. Here's a fifth reason. The context of Paul saying there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, uh, Romans 10 verse 12, is not that Israel and the church are now interchangeable. It is that for the same Lord is Lord of all. So if we say that Paul said there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, then we have to also go to Galatians 3.28 and say, well, there must not be distinction between male and female. And that suddenly makes you a 21st century liberal, right? So that that logic doesn't hold up. (coughs) Sixth reason. The New, the New Testament explicitly says that the Old Testament promises to Israel are still the possession of Israel. It never says that they're fulfilled in the church or fulfilled in Christ. Romans 9, 4 and 5. And the tense here is very important. They are, not were, they are Israelites. And to them belong, not belonged. 
belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, God, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Romans 11.29, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay. Van Dorn. I'm sorry. Uh, Gary Burge. Deep within the New Testament is an announcement of a reversal, a radical reversal. Romans 11.29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Which one are you going to believe? I'm going to believe Paul. 7th reason. The Old Testament teaches the, the future literal permanent restoration of the nation of Israel on a massive scale. This is not just a proof text here or there. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. Jeremiah 30 through 33. And by the way, when we get to the very end of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, we're going to preach one more message from Jeremiah 30 through 33 that shows all the aspects of the future millennial kingdom that is different that's happening on earth right now. Proving a millennial kingdom from the Old Testament. So, um, and it's centered on Israel. Ezekiel 36 through 39, the, the dry bones of Israel being resurrected. Amos 9, 11 through 15. And this one is particularly hard to explain away with symbolism or, or typology. I'm going to read it to you here in a minute. But you have Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20, the return of Christ. And my favorite verse in the Old Testament, Zephaniah 3, 17, that says that Christ Jesus will sing and celebrate and dance over his people. Um, a, a phenomenal thought. Where? In Jerusalem. Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. Isaiah 60. Uh, not, not to mention pretty much all the minor prophets. I, I mean, you have to rip 12 books out of the Bible to get rid of this, uh, just with the minor prophets alone. But I love Amos 9, 11 through 15. One of my professors in seminary said, if you believe Amos 9, 11 through 15, you understand the entirety of the, of the gist of the whole Testament. This is what it's about. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Here's where it gets really, really hard to make this a metaphor and a symbol and typology. The days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their vine, drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Uh, to read covenant theologians exegete Amos 9, 11 through 15. It's like watching somebody juggle plates and bowling pins and ride a unicycle and, and swallow a sword and, and play with fire all at the same time. It's just crazy what they come up with because it's so filled with physical things. The grapes mean this. The seed means this. The mountains mean this. The hills mean this. The fortunes mean this. The ruined cities are... And it's just... It becomes just an exercise in futility. What does this mean? It means that there is a literal permanent restoration of a nation built the way God fully intended it. What did, what did God call that nation? He called it the promised land flowing with milk and honey. 
Another reason. Uh oh, we're only on number eight. I better go faster. The New Testament reiterates the future salvation and restoration of Israel. This is not just an Old Testament concept. Luke twenty one twenty four, Matthew nineteen twenty eight, uh, Luke twenty two thirty, Matthew twenty two thirty nine or twenty three thirty nine through thirty seven. I listed some others there for you as well. So ninth reason: the apostles believed in the rest, restored national Israel, and Jesus never corrected them. And we've said this before: if there was ever a time for Jesus to say stop looking for a kingdom of Israel, it would have been at the end of his ministry when they asked him one last question: Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What are you going to say if there's no more kingdom of Israel? Oh, guys, I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't make this clear. But Israel's done. Uh, we're going to drop a nuclear bomb on it, and, and we're, we're done with Israel. He says, instead, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, they asked, when will the kingdom be restored? And Jesus said, I'm not going to tell you. That's all. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he didn't say 19... 50. Oh no, <laughs> we're doomed. <clears throat> Tenth reason the New Testament never uses the term Israel for those who are not ethnic Jews. Never. There's no nomenclature, there's no name for a new Israel. The title Israel is used 73 times in the New Testament and 100% of the time refers to ethnic Jews. Number 11. The New Testament consistently refers to national Israel as Israel, and the timing is important, after Pentecost. If the church has replaced Israel, when did it happen? It should have happened at Pentecost. And by the way, uh, here's a little note. I just thought of this. Who was Peter preaching to at Pentecost? He was preaching to a bunch of Jews. And if there was ever a time to announce that the church has now replaced Israel, he, he should have told them. But he didn't. He, he preached to them as a Jew, preaching to Jews, and as saved Jews. But he doesn't tell them that. He refers to them as Israel. But Acts 3, verse 12, Acts 4, verse 10, 5, 21, verse 31, verse 35, Acts 21, 28. Israel is still Israel, even after the church. Number 12, Acts maintains a clear distinction referring to Israel 20 times and Ecclesia 19 times, and yet the, the two are never mixed, meaning referring to the nation and the church, but they're never mixed up. They're, they're never, um, and what I mean is when the two are listed at the same time or in close proximity. Thirteenth, commonly used proof text for the replacement or fulfillment position, Galatians 3, 7, 3.29, Ephesians 2.11-22, and I listed some others there. All of them have reasonable explanations within a framework of a distinct church in Israel. None of them are the, oh no, for us dispensationalists. They all have other explanations, and, and frankly, they're always better. I like this one. And, and ironically, um, I think this was also misused by dispensationalists at, time, at times. Matthew 19.28 explicitly says that the apostles will in the future rule over the twelve tribes of Israel. There, there is a contingent of dispensationalism that falls into the camp of believing that God has so disciplined Israel that the church, the Gentiles, will rule over Israel for all of eternity. And they take um, uh, Matthew 19.28 when it says the apostles will rule over Israel. They take 
take uh, the plural for you as the church. The church will rule over Israel. I, I don't see that in Isaiah. I don't see that anywhere else. Um, we see Israel as the lead nation, and the church is grafted into Israel, not the other way around. Let's see. Would that be a good stopping point? Let me do a couple more, and then we have time for questions. Number 15. The apostles preached the restoration of Israel. I don't know what else. I mean, there's another one. Close the book. More coffee. They preached the restoration of Israel to Israel's leaders in Acts 3, 19 through 21 during the church age. So they made a distinction between the age of the church and the age of Israel's restoration. Two different times. Acts 3.19 Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. By the way, that's premillennialism right there. Christ will return, then he will restore all things. So it promises a future restoration associated with the second coming of Christ, not that the restoration is taking place in the church. Number 16. Romans 9.6 indicates that the believing Jews are the true Israel. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You notice that Paul did not say that believing Jews are now merely part of the church. He defines them as true Israel. And you notice that he doesn't he, he does not define believing Gentiles as true Israel. He always keeps it separate. Number 17. Paul says that God is faithful to Israel because of his specific promises to the patriarchs. In Romans 11.28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What does that mean? It means that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would save their people as an ethnic people, and that's why they're still called the elect. Because God keeps his promises. Let's see here. How are we doing? I think that we can call it for today and, um, and finish the rest. At, at, while Scripture nails this down, um, the other considerations are some of my favorite ones because they're just a little bit more fun. Um, but I'll, I'll do those next time. So let's take five minutes for any questions you have. And they might I, I reserve the right to say they'll be answered in number 18 through uh, 32. Any questions or, or comments right now?